0: Everybody else, how's everybody doing? Woo. Amen, amen. Praise God. It's um, we're rounding up. We're rounding up Paul's first journey, uh, first missionary journey. Um, and and in some in some ways, when I when I think about this missionary journey, you know, I, I think I think about all journeys. You know, all journeys teach us something. All journeys teach us something if we're paying attention. Even the vacations teach us something if we're paying attention. You know this. You know one of the one of the things that me and my wife we really really enjoy doing when we're taking time time to ourselves is most of our vacations are spent on some coastline. Um, you know we like we like to go somewhere where we can just hear the water crashing against the banks and and just be at peace. We uh, we 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 obviously like like to find good restaurants to eat and and. And find some, you know, find some other things to enjoy. But more than anything about those trips, what we enjoy, at least what I enjoy, I think she enjoys this. <laughs> but what I enjoy is just getting out on a deck and just sitting there and just watching, watching the wind, watch, watching the waves, watching the water and just thinking and reflecting. God teaches me a lot during those times. I learned lessons on my vacation and, and this year's vacation was no different. I learned tons of lessons about myself and tons of lesson, lessons about my wife and, and about our family and about this church and, and about what what is gonna what is ultimately gonna take for me to endure and and, and 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 what is gonna take for me to be around for the long haul. Not just the long haul in my own personal Dealings, but the long haul and my family, the long haul, and as a as a pastor, pastor in this church, but just the long haul of life in general, walking with Jesus. And so I just spent time just sitting on the deck and constantly reflecting hours upon hours. I would get up in the morning, go out on the deck, and at the end of the night, I would go out to the deck and just literally just sit there and just think because God was teaching me something. Juries teach us things. And, and here we have some lessons in, 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 in this journey as well. Paul's journey, his, his first missionary journey, one of three. We learned some things about, about Paul, but we learned some things about the church. And we learned some things about the Christian life as we watch and observe Paul and Barnabas in their journey. And I want to highlight two lessons as Paul and Barnabas are rounding out their first journey I want to highlight two lessons this morning that seem to leap off the page of this text, and it's this. One, they teach us lessons about resilience. Paul and Barnabas, on their journey, teach us lessons about resilience, and resilience is important because Jesus and his gospel are worth our resilience. And then two, they teach us lessons about people. And people are important because Jesus and his gospel is for people. And so they teach us lessons about resilience on their journey. They teach us lessons about people. I, want, I would like to start with resilience. When you look at verses 1 through 7, what you see is a picture of resilience. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles poison their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Paul and Barnabas literally have just been ran out of a city in Acts chapter 13, when we find them in Acts chapter 14. What would you expect from any normal pair of guys that were ran out of one city just days ago? What would you expect their next effort to look like? What would you expect their next actions to resemble? Maybe take a break. Maybe quit and say, this is not for me. Paul and Barnabas packed their bags after they ran out of the city in Acts chapter 13 and they pressed forward to the next town 80 miles down the road called Iconium. Not only do they keep going, however, but they but they they keep going in the same manner that led them in the beginning to or that led them previously to be ran out of town. They go to the synagogue. They come into the city of Iconium and they go into the Jewish synagogue, and the Jewish synagogue was primarily responsible in 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 Acts chapter 13 for running them out of town. Why continue to do this? Why continue to do it this way? It's because they are firmly convinced that the methods aren't the issue. They are firmly convinced that the message is not the issue. What they, what is the issue that is driving people to the rage that they're that they're showing? Is their hearts. But every heart that rejects the message of the gospel, for for every heart that rejects the message of the gospel, there is a heart capable of receiving the message of the gospel, which is why they keep going even though they are being pushed out of many places. You see in verse 1 that Paul's resilience is rewarded. It says that Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that that the Greeks and the Jews in the room believed. Don't discount God using your words, using how you share for his glory. Is God sovereign and in control of salvation? Of course he's sovereign and in control of salvation. Is, God, is the Spirit of God responsible for turning hearts who eventually receive the message of the gospel? Of course the Spirit of God is responsible for turning hearts for those that receive the message of the gospel. Are those two truths, however, evidence that it doesn't matter what we say and how we say it because God is going to do his work anyway? The answer is absolutely not. God is using, using our words and how we speak within his parameters of sovereignty and within the aid and the power of his spirit to turn hearts towards him. Oftentimes, God uses our persuasive and by his spirit, powerful preaching and sharing of the gospel that we give to our neighbors and friends and family and churches as one of his tools to turn people's hearts towards him. And we see it here in this text. God is God. The father is using the preaching of Paul and Barnabas to turn the heart. It says they spoke in such a way that many people came to faith. So their resilience is rewarded, but their resilience is also rejected. In verse 2 it says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. As we discussed last week, no matter how powerful the message delivered is, and no matter how persuasive the preaching that's delivered is, no matter how gracious it can be presented, some people will still oppose it. Some people will still reject the message of the gospel. Tim Keller says about evangelism that in his book on evangelism, the, the greater the effectiveness of a ministry, the greater the resistance and the opposition towards that ministry. The gospel message is a dividing one. It will attract some and it will repel others. You can't stop that, neither should you try. In fact, Pastor Tony Moreda says correctly, if the gospel message shared is not both uniting and dividing, In fact, you can be sure that the true gospel isn't being preached. So we should expect people to reject the message, but we should also expect people to actively accept and embrace the message. But we should also expect people to not only reject the message, we should expect people to oppose, actively oppose the message. Not just simply say, that's not for me but to get people to come along and say, stop him from talking. Does that make sense? Pay special, special attention to verse 3 where it says, so, so Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done in the church. Notice what happened here. It says that they were preaching, and they spoke in such a way that, that men and women came to saving faith, And then they had some people that were opposing them, unbelieving Jews that were stirring up ruckus amongst the Gentiles, poisoning their minds against the brothers. And so it says they stayed. What happened? Did anybody catch that? They 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 were facing opposition. Minds were being poisoned. Confusion and ruckus was being stirred up. So they stayed. Not, not, and so they left because it was just too hard and too many people are opposing them and this is just crazy. No, they actually leaned in, dug in and said, okay, well, let's stick around for a little while. See if we can make any inroads into this hard, turbulent territory that we're in. They faced opposition, so they remained. That's when you know God is doing something in the heart of a missionary. The opposition doesn't push him away, it pushes him deeper into the soil, digging deeper roots than before. Why? Why? Because the gospel is worth it. They're resilient because the gospel is worth it. Christian ministry has its reward both in this life, with the lives touched and transformed. And the joy that comes in connecting people to Jesus, and it has its reward in the life to come as we inherit eternal life in the presence of Christ, and we 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 relish the, the eternal reward of being missionaries and sharing his gospel and expanding his kingdom. The gospel's worth it, and so that's why they dig in. But the reward does not come without resistance. You have to be willing to push through. You have to be willing to push through discomfort and disappointment and hardships in order, to, in order to relish and enjoy the fruit of the resilience. This is what Paul and Barnabas are committed to doing. And God continues to reward them and affirm their calling and, and work with undeniable signs and wonders to validate the message that is being proclaimed. And yet, even in the light of the hand of the Lord obviously being upon them, they are still confronted with resistance and opposition. Verse 4 says the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And what do they do? An attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, and they learned of it and fled. To Lystra and Derby, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding count country, there they continued to preach the gospel. Resilience is also discerning, right? They dug in. They said, "Hey, we're going to be here for a while." And then they heard that they're about to get stoned, and they said, "Well, I guess it's time to leave, right?" It doesn't. It doesn't mean that. It, that see, here's what we got to understand: resilience. Is not first and primarily concerned about comfort, safety, and security. Paul and Barnabas stayed as long as they could through the threat, through the opposition, through the discomfort, before they realized that they had to keep moving if they expected to stay alive. And then they finally moved. Sometimes we just simply live to fight another day. We recognize that there is no there is no more ground that we can cover. It doesn't mean that that's always the case, because sometimes the spirit marches us right into danger. For example, when you look at Acts chapter 20, Paul talks to the Ephesian pastors there. And as he's sharing with the elders that he's preparing to go to Rome, they share with him that Paul, there's trouble on that road. The spirit has showed us this. And Paul says, yes, the spirit has shown me that too. But the Spirit has also compelled me to go, knowing that suffering awaits me on the other side. He says as much in chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. He says that literally every city that every city I'm going to, prison and afflictions await me. But then he says in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. The only thing that's important is that I finish the race. And so sometimes, sometimes God leads us out of danger. Sometimes God, by the Spirit, marches us right into it. And so resilience is discerning. It's the ability to lean into the Spirit. Pray, ask the Lord to direct us, order our steps, and to move as best we see him moving us. Does that make sense? Each situation has to be judged on its own merit and on its own situation or, or, or within, it, within its own particular conditions. And ultimately, in, in, in whatever way the Lord is leading us and, pr- and pushing us out. Let me ask you a question. Does your life reflect this type of resilience? Where is your resilience meter right now? How much do you take before you say, ah, God, man, I'm out of here. It's a little too much right now. A little too hot in here. But not only only is God teaching us about about resilience, I mentioned that He's also teaching us about people in this journey, right? As they move to, as they move from Iconium to Lystra, what we we begin to see is a lesson, uh, our lessons begin to move from persistence and resilience to dealing with people. The first lesson that we learn about people is that we have to love people to Jesus. We have to love people to Jesus. No mission will withstand fears and and sustain difficulty without a bona fide love for God and a bona fide love for people. Let me tell you something about just ministry. You will not continue in ministry unless you really love God and really, really, really love people. Or you're making a whole lot of money or something like that. And most ministers ain't doing that. And so unless you really, really, really love God or really, really, really love people and really, really, really love people, there isn't enough to keep you here. There isn't enough to keep you here. And there isn't enough to keep you ministering in the ways that God has called you to minister. You'll quit. You'll say, you know what? (laughs) I'll just go to church, right? That's good enough, right? me trying to serve lord and share jesus and invite my neighbors and all uh nah i'm not doing that it's a lot easier just to go to church for me and go home so we must so, so paul and barnabas are teaching us that there has to be an active love that comes alongside our call a love that, that leads us to sacrificing for people. A love that leads us in that sacrificing to seeing those people empowered. And a love that ultimately leads us with, to, to opportunities for those people to hear the gospel and receive it by faith. See, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're fresh off of being run out of another city, Iconium. They ran out of cities in thirteen, chapter 13. They ran out of cities in the beginning of 14. And, and, and what's their response? Is their response to go to another city and just hide out? No, their response is literally to do the exact same thing they've been doing. To go to the city and to share Jesus. To love people through word and through deed, we see it in verse eight, now in Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, and he was crippled from birth and had never walked. and he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, "Stand up right on your feet," and he sprang up and began walking. The gospel that we preach and the gospel that we share is affirmed in the love that we give. As we look to serve those in need, we are building credibility to share about the God who sacrificially came to earth in the form of a humble carpenter, a humble servant, and lived a perfect life that none of us can live and lived it on our behalf and, and gave his life on a cross in order that sin might be erased, that guilt and shame and the penalty for our sin might be removed, and that through his death, burial, and resurrection, we would be saved through faith and given eternal life. That gospel is affirmed through the love that we share. How can we tell people about such a savior? How can we tell people that such a savior lives without looking for ways to reflect that love and that sacrifice ourselves? See, Paul in healing this man in Lystra is drawing a direct connection to a savior, to the savior. And he's saying and drawing that connection at least two things. One, the Savior that I preach is merciful and loving enough to not walk by our suffering. But he stops and he empathizes with us. But number two, he's also saying the Savior that I proclaim is powerful and sovereign enough to one day once and for all put an end to our suffering. And those two things are being affirmed in this one moment where this man is being healed. See, I've never seen a person come to Jesus as a result of someone arrogantly tearing them down on social media in order to win an argument. But we spend most of our energy tearing one another down arrogantly in order to win arguments for the gospel. And for the people listening on audio, I put it in air quotes. But I've never seen anyone want to the faith that way. I've seen the gospel shared and affirmed in love. How did you get? How did you come to Jesus? Some arrogant argument that you had and you went home, and you was like, you know what, I really love Jesus now. It's not how it happened. It's not how it happened. Jesus loved you to himself. Jesus loved you to himself. He wooed you with his grace, wooed you with mercy. Love people to Jesus, but don't love people more than Jesus. Look at verse 11. It says, When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, In Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. What happens after a powerful display of love and compassion, even in the name of Jesus? Well, sometimes people begin to worship Jesus, other times, people begin to worship you. The people of Lystra look at this miracle and they say to themselves, Those are our gods and they run to try to worship. Now, there, there, this, this connection that Paul and Barnabas are experiencing to, to Greek gods, and this quick turn that the people of Lystra seem to make towards seeing them as gods has, has some connections to a legend in this community. It was a, there, there, a, a, there's a Latin poet that once described how the gods descended to this region, looking for hospitality, and everyone rejected the gods except this one poor couple. And that and that and that couple, they they embraced the gods and welcomed them into their homes. And so the gods, in return for their hospitality, um, t- transformed their home into a temple and made them, rewarded them as being guardians of that temple. And the gods, in return for the, for, 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 the, for, for the lack of hospitality from the rest of the community, flooded the community with a severe flood. And so in performing these actual acts of worship, the people seem to believe that they are setting themselves up to receive the favor of the gods, like that poor couple from the legend. So they begin to praise Paul and praise Barnabas. And how does Paul and Barnabas respond to this act of idol worship? Verse 14, it says, but when, they, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. First, they grieved. They grieved. When God is seen so clearly by someone, any worship that is directed their way becomes an act to grieve over. Because when God is seen clearly, you know that you aren't even close to deserving that worship. But see, when people's needs are being met, it it can become so easy for them to turn their worship to you because they see you as the need provider. Instead of seeing you as just one of the conduits, instead of seeing you as just one of the vessels that God is using to meet their need, they look to you as the provider of needs. Paul and Barnabas refused to let this happen. They, they, they ripped their clothes grieving at the idea that people would even think that they were worthy of worship. And then the second thing they do is they redirect the glory back to God. They redirect the glory back to Christ by presenting the gospel in a way that these people can understand in verse 15 through 18. Look with me. It says, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all of the nations to walk in their own way. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now notice that this presentation of the gospel, if you were with us last week in chapter 13, this presentation in chapter 14 is very different from the presentation in chapter 13. And we talked about that there was reasons for the differences. The context matters. Where are you? What do the people know? What cultural concerns and cultural and cultural struggles are the people dealing with? And you address them and you hit them and you lead them to the gospel of Jesus Christ through the, through the lanes of their cultural needs and cultural concerns and cultural struggles. For the Jewish synagogue that they preached in Acts chapter 13, they talked all about Jesus being the promise fulfilled from the Old Testament, right? For this group of people in Lystra, they say nothing about it. Why? Because these people don't know anything about that. As a matter of fact, this group, many theologians and historians would argue, this group is not really educated at all. Easily persuaded, in fact, in some cases. And so as a result, they see these people looking to them as gods, because they made provision. And so, what do they do? They talk about provision. And they say, No, there is one who is ultimately making provision for us all. That's the one that you need to look to. The one that provides the rains from the heavens. The one that gives fruitful seasons. That's the one that you need to look to. The one that made the heavens and the earth. In other words, he he, he extend, or he exceeds all the other gods that you have created in your own image and likeness. There is only one that was responsible for creation. There is only one that's responsible for daily provision. And that's the one that you need to look to. And that one is sin and son, Jesus Christ. You see how that gospel, you see how they lead people with that gospel? Totally different from what we saw in Acts chapter 13. but ultimately they love the people but they don't love them so much or they don't love them more than they love Jesus they don't love them so much that they just absorb that praise no they love Jesus too much and so they redirect their praise again tony marita pastor tony marita says ministers today must take note of the missionary's intense deflection of glory Herod would have enjoyed such praise. You remember King Herod? Put on his good robes and just sucked it all in. Not us. Not the saints. We're constantly pointing people to the glory, to, to, to redirecting their glory back to God. We must never love people so much that we love their praise over God. We must never love them to the point where we allow people to grow dependent on us as their God. See, you can do this at personal levels with the relationships in your lives. You can do this at corporate levels with the institutions that we build. Instead of pointing people to the God of those institutions, we get to a point where people see the school as God. Or we get to the point where people see church. The institution as God. We get to the point where, we, where, where people see government as God. And so you can do it in institutions, corporately, but you can also do it, obviously, personally. We must never forget that God is God. We are not. Paul and Barnabas understand this, and so, yes, they love them, but they love them enough to point them to Jesus as Savior, not back to themselves. And what you see is that many of these people aren't necessarily the most discerning, so they are easily and often persuaded in the wrong direction. So at first, they refuse to stop worshiping them. They say, no, don't worship us. They preach the gospel. These people say, no, we're going to still offer sacrifices to you, just in case you're trying to trick us. We don't want anything bad to happen. And then something really, really, really crazy happens. And this this is a painful lesson that Paul teaches us. Obviously, not deliberately. He's not trying to teach us this lesson, but it would be important for us to learn this lesson. In verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, He went with Barnabas to Derby. The crowds go from praising Paul to pelting Paul. They go from singing praises to Paul to stoning Paul, dragging him out of the city. This is another reason why Paul liberally deflects the praise back to God. Paul knows, Paul knows this. Sometimes we don't, but Paul knows this. Man's praise is fickle. In the words of the great African-American poet, Lauren Hill, people will hail you and nail you, no matter who you are. When you try to take the praise of men For yourself, instead of of deflecting it to God, you have to spend all of your days, all of your energy, and all of your focus on trying to keep it. The person who spends all of their energy trying to be liked because he enjoys that comes Uh, because he enjoys that which comes from the praise of men, has to spend all of their energy and all of their focus and all of their time trying to keep it. The church that spends all of their energy with tricks and gadgets to keep numbers high because they secretly enjoy the praise that comes from being a big church rather than being a church that is winning big numbers to Jesus. They have to spend all of their energy and all of their focus and all of their time trying to keep the people, happy. See, those people in those groups, they find themselves constantly moving from the principles that they were established on. They they find themselves constantly moving from agenda to agenda. They find themselves constantly sacrificing their values. They find themselves constantly sacrificing their standards to keep men's praise. And the moment that you fail to meet the demands of the mob is the moment that they turn on you. Paul and Barnabas are here for an audience of one. And that one is the one that we look up to, not the ones that we look around at. You see guys, football players, basketball players, athletes, Celebrities, people worship, literally worship them, and they receive it and embrace it. And then a failure happens, and people treat them like a laughingstock, and it literally happens overnight. Paul and Barnabas are here for an audience of one, and that one is the one that they look up to, not the one that we look around at. So as we, as, we, as we start trying to wrap this up in verses 21 through 23, Paul and Barnabas begin to make their way back to Antioch, begin to make their way back home. And what are the two lessons that leap off the page as we read these verses and they're, they're making their way back home? Verse 21, it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What are the lessons that pop off the page for me? People in resilience. People in resilience. As they make their way back down the home stretch home, what are they doing? They stop at every city that they first visited. Each city that they planted a church in, they go back to. And why do they go back? Because of the people. To encourage, to disciple, to train, to equip, to strengthen. The Bible says they strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. They appointed elders. Why? Because each church needed leadership. Each church needed shepherding. Each church needed care and oversight. Someone to lovingly, lovingly lead, lovingly guide, humbly lead, humbly guide, not lord over them. And so they, and so they literally, they literally were over the process as they went from city to city. They were, they were careful. To to shepherd over the process of appointing those elders because they wanted to make sure that the right people were in the job. Why? Because they loved the people. And what else jumps off the page? Resilience. Verse 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel in Derby and had made many disciples. Don't forget verse 20. Paul was literally just stoned, dragged out to the outside of a city. He gets up, goes back in the city with his brothers and sisters, gets a nice rest, and then leaves, goes back, and preaches the gospel in the next city. Resilience. And then he goes back to all the cities that he was ran out of so that he can encourage the people that are in the city to continue in the faith. And how does he disciple them? How does he disciple them? Look at verse 21 again, or 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue. What is that? Resilience, perseverance. And saying, listen to this, That through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. He's discipling them in the area of resilience. Telling them to hold on. Telling them to stick with it. To not leave the hand of god no matter how hard things get setting their expectations not saying hey now that you're in jesus jack everything you ever wanted you got you just you you don't don't worry about anything what you say you need a car you get a car you get a car you get, I mean, no that's not how he addresses this what expectation does he set for them with many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes life is going to be tragic, and God is yet faithful. Hold on. What is your resilience meter? I asked you that earlier. What is your resilience meter right now? Is it at the financial level? Is it, is it okay, money's tight, so ah, now nah, I'm off. I'm off my game. Everything's off not going to church, not praying, not reading my word, not sharing the gospel, because my finances are funny. Is it relational level? Ah, me and, me and brother so-and-so had a falling out, or me and sister so-and-so had a falling out, so I'm not going to church anymore and not, not sharing my word, not seeking to reconcile, not not praying, not loving people despite their faults. Is it at the temptation level, wrestling with this sin in my life? And so now that I'm wrestling with this sin in my life, ah, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm out, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not coming to church because I'm wrestling with this sin. Not continuing to fellowship with the saints so that I might be strengthened to fight sin. I'm just running away. I'm running away from God, not seeking confession, not staying, staying in my word. How much does it take for you to cast Jesus to the side? Or to ask it another way, how much resilience is Jesus worth? As Paul is returning back to each city that he visits, the lesson that he leaves them is to be resilient. Jesus and his gospel are worth our resilience. And Jesus and his gospel are for the people around us. So may we learn these lessons for the glory of God. Amen. May we learn these lessons for our own strengthening, our own encouragement, and our own eternal joy and good in him.